You are listening to Climate Changed, a podcast about pursuing faith, life, and love in a climate-changed world. Hosted by me, Nicole Deeroff. And me, Ben Yashua Davis. Climate Changed features guests who deepen the conversation while also stirring the waters. The Climate Changed podcast is a project of the BTS Center. It's really nice to be with you today, Ben. Likewise, likewise. I have been thinking a lot these days about what I'm paying attention to, what I'm noticing, and our guest today uh, unpacks that in some ways that I really love. I'm wondering, what are you trying to pay attention to these days? I was thinking about the work that I do as a home renovator. This is like my other hat that I put on on weekends and this property that we have was really just incredibly run down and we're bringing back to life. And it's about two cleared acres on the island where we live. And one of my new practices is when I pull up to the house in my 1978 GMC Sierra, which (laughs) is basically an axle, four tires, an engine, and a lot of rust. I turn off the truck, and before I rush in to begin my day, I try to walk, kind of circumnavigate the property while praying circling prayers from the Celtic Christian tradition. And this is giving me a wonderful opportunity to notice what's happening on the Mm. land in ways that I haven't before. Begin to notice the trees that are circling the fields, noticing where the bittersweet, which is the bane of every islander's existence, needs to be trimmed back really significantly. And uh, begin to watch the land kind of start to come alive uh, as the seasons come alive as well. So that's been one of my big noticing practices uh, right now. What about for you? Oh, I love that. And I I really would like to visit the island and see you driving that car someday. That that would bring me great joy. (laughs) I would be thrilled to give you a ride. Um, You just have to make sure when you step into the cab that you don't step through the floor. (laughs) When you're getting in. (laughs) All right. I'll try and be nimble. So I have been wanting to connect with this maple tree that's right outside of a room in our house that has a lot of windows in it. And this tree, in many ways, is the artwork on the walls of uh, that room. I've been wanting to treat this tree as a friend. I have been trying to figure out how to remember to do that. I like your um, the way in which when you drive up and stop at the house, that's your trigger to kind of do this noticing. But because I'm walking through the house all the time, I didn't have a trigger. So I have decided that when I take my first sip of coffee in the morning, I'm going to go over and greet my friend, the maple. And it has worked for the past mm, maybe month. And I love sort of tracking the seasons through the lens of this tree, whether it's buds emerging or leaves changing color. I think I'm going to notice so much more. And I hope it builds a relationship. I'm really excited to actually hear, maybe we can track throughout some of our conversations what the maple tree is telling you over time. (laughs) And your property too. All right. I am excited to jump into today's episode. Nicole, you had such a powerful conversation with Karina Newsom. I totally did. It was the kind of conversation where I couldn't help myself from saying yes and amen. Karina and I 
connected in an honest way that does not always happen, especially the first time you meet someone. Let me tell you a little about Karina Newsom, who is known as Hood Naturalist on Twitter and is the Associate Conservation Scientist at the National Wildlife Federation. She recently graduated from Georgia Southern University with a Master of Science in Biology. Karina began in the field of wildlife science as an animal care professional. She specializes in avian conservation and passionately connects people with the natural world through birds. She did this at previous jobs at the Nashville Zoo and Georgia's Audubon Society. In our conversation, Karina shares how she has experienced the hurdles faced by marginalized communities in wildlife conservation. And as a result, Karina's mission is to center the perspectives and the leadership of Black, Indigenous, and people of color in wildlife conservation, environmental education, and simply through exploration of the natural world. And in our conversation, we talked about a poem by Emily Dickinson. In each episode of Climate Change, we'll take a moment to center and ground ourselves in our bodies, and we thought this poem would be just perfect. We invited poet Maya Williams to read the poem for us. Maya Williams, along with fellow poet Padraig Otuma, were featured in our 2021 Artist Series program, Poetry as an Art of Survival. Maya Williams is from right here in Portland, Maine. They are a religious, queer, black, mixed-race suicide survivor constantly writing poems. You will hear Maya read Dickinson's Hope, followed by one of Maya's original poems. Hope by Emily Dickinson Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. And sweetest in the gale is heard, and sore must be the storm, that could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. I've heard it in the chillest land, and on the strangest sea, yet never in extremity it asked a crumb of me. Religious imposters, after Anis Mojgani's Shake the Dust. This is for the evangelist through actions rather than words. I see you. Don't let this be another poem you leave to hang dry on the clothing line and forget later. To the monotheistic Hindus and Buddhists, to the non-kosher Jews, let this poem be one that covers you the way you need it to. A lot of disagreements can come out of various perspectives, but let this be a poem where part of you can be seen, if only for a moment. This is for the evangelical who is unsure about heaven and hell. This is for the hijabi. This is for the non-hijabi waiting for the right time to cover to the non-hijabi not requiring herself to wait for anything. 
This is for the religious and non-religious agnostics, to the Sikhs without long hair and turbans, to the Jains who swat at flies. I know you may feel like a religious imposter in your own spaces, but I see you. To the proselytizers and non-proselytizers, to the LGBTQIA affirming theologians trying to love their siblings well, to the feminist theologians trying to follow scripture the best way they know how to, not knowing how to fit in the faith among them. I see you and I hear you. To the religious and non-religious scientists, the pantheists, the seeking pagans, the irreligious and unaffiliated, to the ones with and without rest on Fridays, Saturdays, or Sundays, to the identifiers of more than one worldview, to the more I wish I could list, forgive us for accusing you of cherry picking. You're only trying to find the best fruit for your labor to put back into the world. Thank you, Maya. You can learn more about Maya Williams at their website, mayawilliamspoet.com. On the site, you will find readings of more original poems. Religious Imposters was published in Frost Metal Review and then shared on Interfaith Youth Corps. So, Nicole, you have a conversation to share with us. I sure do. Karina and I chatted for a little while, well over an hour, and we'll be sure to put a link to the entire conversation if you're interested. But I want to say just a little more about Karina Newsom. A Christian originally from Philadelphia, Karina has been an active member of Young Evangelicals for Climate Action. She is one of the co-organizers of the inaugural Black Birders Week. I first encountered Karina when I read her essay in the 2019 anthology Rooted and Rising, Voices of Courage in a Time of Climate Crisis. There is so much more I could say about Karina. I deeply respect her and really enjoyed talking to her. So I'm excited to share this conversation with all of you. I'm a wildlife conservationist whose work is centered around environmental justice for people, for communities of human beings. I'm in a state where my faith in Christ is part of my hope, but in many ways has been deconstructed and is being reformed. And it's helping me to understand the complexity as well as the capacity for manifesting the vision that we want to see for our communities in ways that I really up until recently, didn't even have the capacity to imagine and have the mm. capacity to think about. Mm. The interesting thing, if it's okay, the interesting thing that has emerged for me now is that, and this is, I was just talking about this yesterday, so I'm fired up. Great. Is that over the past three years, approximately, when activism has been a real central part of my work around mm. social justice. So I've, I've worked in like climate activism. I've been a part of an organization called Young Evangelicals for Climate Action for several years, but it was never, it was, it never like was in, in like in the center of my life so much mm. as it activism generally speaking is now. And where I'm really coming up against the, the tangible like <laughs> hostility around inequity, right. Yes. Um, from the general public. And so 
over the past three years, I've been really in the mix of that and, and talking a lot about environmental justice and a lot about the ways that racism and white supremacy manifests in every possible dimension of um, a non-white person, but in my case, a black person's experience in the sciences and recreation in healthcare and all these. And yeah. it just became, I was infuriated all the time, which it's not wrong to be angry, right? It's not wrong to get angry, but I was living in anger. I was yeah. like rooted in anger and I was becoming unhealthy, physically unhealthy. I was becoming separated. I could feel it from, from my faith, from God. Like it, it was like a, an anger that was like, made me not want, I was averse to like love. It was like, I don't, wow. I don't want that right now. I don't need that. Like it almost feels like that's not what the world needs. Like we need to address these issues and that requires. And so like, and, I, and I'm like, how do you hold both of these? I never knew. I'm like, how do you hold the urgency and the, the need to like, hold systems accountable and like shake them to pieces and destroy them and build new things. Right. How do you have that ability to do that? And also like walk in love. And when I say that, that doesn't mean lack of accountability or lack of anger Uh or lack of any of that, but it's like, like how do you not carry the burden of anger? Right. Right. (laughs) Like that's like a double whammy. Like you're kind of subjected to the injustice and then you're carrying a burden of just the emotional response. And it was a lot and it separated me from God. Literally within the past month, I have been rethinking everything. I realized the the way that I come to think about my faith as a child, like, again, nothing was interrogated. It was just incorporated into what I, you know, how I believe the world to, to be in history and all, this, all these things. I was like, I have to start over. I actually yeah. have to start over. Who was Jesus? Who was the, who was the great community organizer as uh, uh, one of my pastors who I look up to, Reverend Dr. Heber Brown says, a woman yes. is community yes. organizer, right? And I was like, let me start over because I've been trying to reconcile how I came to have a faith as a child and how I came to believe with what I know to be true about injustice right now. And it's not matching up and I can't, I, it's not working for me. So literally over the past month, I've been rereading the gospels, like all of that, you know, from top to bottom with a new perspective of who is Jesus, yeah. the person, right? You know what I mean? Like, and it's like changing everything. Like, I feel like a new person. I, I felt so out of touch with like the joy that I feel like God has naturally given me. And I, and I feel like I'm becoming aware. I'm becoming back in touch and, and back in relationship with God and like in touch with who it is he's called me to be. And it's just, there's not as much weight there and I can move freely. There's freedom there. That will be my answer. My long answer. That, wow. You know, um, faith journeys are not sound bites. They're not. So um, I appreciate the way in which that was long and circular and in process and in yeah. process. Um, yeah. And you will be in my prayers. You will be in my Thank prayers you. because what you're wrestling with is huge. As you started talking about being, cons- you know, the possibility of just being consumed by anger, actually an image of Jesus really came to my mind of this person who was going through the world and being threatened and had very much had that possibility of being consumed by anger and at the same time wanted to challenge structures. So um, Mm, I will be thinking of you as you reread and um, maybe I'll do some rereading with you in spirit. (laughs) Yeah. I have been looking forward to having a conversation with you around the theme of paying attention. Um, Mm. You are a contributor to a book that we have been engaging with a whole bunch at the BTS Center called Rooted and Rising. 
Voices of Courage in a Time of Climate Crisis, edited by Leah Shade and Margaret Bullet Jonas, both of whom are friends of this organization at this point. And you in in I think it's your opening paragraph has have this quote where you say, I decided I would make a career out of my desire to look closely. And I highlighted that right away. I just love it. And I wonder if you want to just speak to that at all. I know that essay in a way is a few years old at this point. So um, yeah, how you would talk about that concept right now? Yeah, you know, I think that, and I, in a conversation I had recently on Instagram Live, um, one of the things that I realized coming from a low wealth background that has a lot of madness and chaos associated with it because of the low income, low resource context in which I lived and which my family lives. Yes. Um, one of the things that I realized is that when it comes to the, 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 the busyness of staying afloat, we, it kind of eliminates our ability to kind of be in touch with our, our, our life source, which is wow. the natural world around us, right? Which causes, which is another essentially layer of, of harm done to people living in poverty, people yes. living um, in resource deprivation. Yes. And it creates just like this, a cycle that feeds on itself. It just depletes you, you know? And um, one of the things that I've realized recently, and like I've known, but it really kind of crystallized for me recently was that, and depending on where you are, you have different amounts of access to this. I cr- I currently live in Atlanta, Georgia, which is called the city in the forest because even in your most low income areas, we have like old growth forests mm. and and it just it's unlike anything I've ever seen. That's not the case for every city and every right. you know low low wealth community um, by any by any means, especially in some of your biggest cities. Um, but there are even in those scenarios, there are ways to 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 watch life, to look closely at the life that's happening. And there is an actual, like, you can feel, you can feel the difference it makes in your body as far as the stress levels and just the constant, like, um, tension that just exists from not, not knowing and having to ration constantly. Like, that is such a taxing way to live. Yeah. And the moment you stop for 30 seconds and watch a living thing, Something lifts inside of you. Something just like a burden just feels, it just life feels lighter somehow. And so I've realized that, um, looking closely is like very much a necessary, uh, a necessary opportunity that everyone needs to be able to do, but you don't necessarily know that it's there if you're not taught. So yes. as much as I even love why I was already a wildlife nerd and I didn't even know that I could have looked closely at the world around me where I was and have seen so much life. I didn't know there was life to see. Of course, now that I've, since I've gone back to Philadelphia and have like, and which is just very recent, even since that book chapter and had the chance to just bird and look at birds. I'm yeah. like, oh, wait, there are birds here. Right. I just didn't know. Cause right. I, I had no teacher. I had no one showing me. Right. And I'm like, had I known to look at these things? I just imagine like how much stress I could have felt lift off of me in those moments where I was sitting panicked about like oh my gosh like I don't have lunch for tomorrow what am I going to eat like oh my gosh like our electricity got cut off like and I have to do all my homework before my battery runs out of my computer like all these moments where I had these just like gripping bouts of stress and I could have looked outside and yep. there could there there was probably something I could have stared at that would have lifted a burden even a little bit 
Um, and so it's, you know, kind of going back to the origin, not only is that like a stress reliever that I'm really tapping into now and encouraging people to engage in now, but it's like, it's fun. Like, oh my gosh, especially if you're a person of faith, it's like, wow, you are able to see a reflection of the creator who spoke this into existence, like, and watch his word continue to create life, right? Like we're continuing to see how life is bursting at the seams from everything from like the diversity of birds and the planet all the way down to like the the morphology of a caterpillar. It's just right. like there's so and you can never see it all. So it's just right. like a constant bottomless like jar of of gold. Like you can just like and you so if you there is no end to the supply of wonder, there's no end to the supply of healing that looking closely outside provides you. And I'm just so grateful to our creator for for giving us that bounty. Um, and I'm very committed to addressing the ways in which that bounty is not accessible equally. Um, yes. So that's a, kind of part of part of the work that I try to do. One of the a really incredible example of oh, a framework through which I've seen faith communities and specifically black faith communities engage with this. And it's, it's not even so much in the realm of or from the perspective of exploration for exploration's sake, or mm. but in in the context of of actually addressing resource uh, inequity and resource depletion, and and yeah. from the from the framework of food sovereignty, and so I've seen churches. Um, there's a there's a faith community that does has created the Black Church Black Church food. Oh gosh, I I have to look this up. I'm sorry, I can't even think of it right now. But it's like the a Black Church food sovereignty network that essentially connects churches together across kind of the East coast. And they, part of their ministry is being outside and learning about food systems and like having people grow food and having people share food and they're, you know, like that in itself. So right. Like thinking about, in addition to the, 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 just the joy of, wow, like look at these pits, like look at these, look at this biodiversity. It's like, look at how food grows and like, look at how much bounty there is. When, when we do it ourselves and, you know, like there, there are so many benefits that come from that, that addresses the issues in equity, but also connects people to our source of life. Yeah. Um, and then, and then of course, with that is this growing wonder and you get, you are then positioned to look closely. Oh my gosh. Like, look at what just came up out of the earth when I pulled up this carrot. Look what just came out, you know, like look at the, the wildlife that's using this space that we have cultivated for our food. And using it for their own resources too, you know, and it's, it's like they're, they're seeing it be addressed in that kind of an intersectional way is such a beautiful, beautiful thing. And it's tied very closely to activism. It's tied closely to community organizing, but it, it creates the space and the framework for people to be able to be connected, especially those, you know, communities who have been deprived of resources to be connected to the source of life, of joy, of, of wonder, um, and so I, I try to find ways to model that where I, you know, I try to prop up those kinds of examples, like look at how multidimensional the, 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 the benefits are when, yeah. when we do this. Um, so, yeah. yeah. For me, this really relates to the question of hope, which I think um, people of faith kind of get this question <laughs> thrown at them. Okay, you're a person of faith. So where's your hope? You know, like I need hope. Yeah. Can you give me some hope? Um, I don't know if you've had that experience or not, but I, um, when I opened up your, your essay in Rooted and Rising, um, another time, I loved that you started with this, with this reference to Emily Dickinson, who says, hope is the thing with feathers 
that perches in the soul. Yeah. So I just I I'd love to hear your thoughts on on hope and um what moved you so much about that quote to you know have it be the what brings people into that essay. Yeah, so I think for me it was re- it was the so the reason why that that essay or that that poem was so meaningful to me was that as I began to learn about birds and, and study them very specifically and very closely, I realized, and I referenced the scripture in that essay about, you know, about where God is, right? Mm. If I go to the, I, ooh, I might misquote this, Lord have mercy. But essentially, no matter where I go, um, you are there. If it's mm. the depths of, of hell, you're there. If mm-hmm. it's, you know, on, on the mountaintop, you're there. And it reminded me of birds so much because mm. there's nowhere just about that you can go where there aren't birds. Amen. In the, you can be in the, you know, filthiest, like most urban, like polluted environment. You're going to see these extremely like hardy sparrows. They may not be, they may be an invasive species, but they're still, they're still in their own right. Inherently beautiful birds, incredible species, right? You see life, you see life finding a way to exist and Mm. even thrive in many ways. And then, of course, if you go to these very, what many people would consider to be pristine kind of ecosystems, of course, you see a brilliant diversity of birds. You also see in places where birds are kind of given the resources they need to thrive, you you see a greater diversity. You see, you know, so there's this pairing right, of understanding that right. with, with kind of releasing the, releasing the, the bondage of injustice that creates resource scarcity and creates an overall scarcity in, in 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 the lives of people like me and my family who have kind of been in the middle of, of situations like this. Like when people are free to to live in their the fullness of their creativity, they're like that imagination and that hope. It just comes alive. It just bursts. And mm-hmm. I've realized recently when I as I've been working more with young people and in particular young people who are from backgrounds like mine, yeah, you know, communities of color, black communities, uh, low wealth communities, right? Like seeing them kind of, and, and it has to, you know, there are a lot of threads here, right? Like whether it's like our identity that we've kind of felt the need to, or or felt, you know, hostility towards because, you know, because of white supremacy and because of, you know, anti-blackness and things like that. There's, there you know, seeing just the cultivation of love of self and all of who mm-hmm. you are has created a situation in which people are able to be so much more creative and be so much more imaginative. And that has really been the thing on which I, on which my hope has, in which my hope has dwelled, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, wow, like we actually, there's a whole lot more capacity here than I ever thought was possible because people are able to exist in their, in their fullness, in the fullness of their humanity. And when people experience marginalizations of who they are, whether it's because of their sexual orientation or because of their socioeconomic status or because of their ethnic identity, like that cramps us. Like we're not even able to, like how we, yeah. we are not able to contribute. Like it's just yeah. like, we can contribute so much more when we are able to exist in the fullness of our humanity. And so the reason why that poem to me was so important is because a single bird, right? A single bird in my act of studying it, studying them closely. If you were to look at it, you'd be like, Oh, this thing is fragile. Like if you pick up a bird, right? You're like, this thing is lightweight. I could literally crush it. If I try not very hard in my hand, right? It's, full of hollow bones. It's full of air sacs, right? Like yes. it's mostly feathers. It's, it feels like nothing. Like it wow. would just crumble under the pressure. Right. And I feel like that is an assumption that a lot of people make about people who are 
pushing mm, towards the society amen. who are who are like in these vulnerable positions. It's like it, like one one thing goes wrong and it could tear you apart. Like you know what I mean? It just even from being someone in that position, it feels yeah. vulnerable, right? But at the same time, so say like a little ruby throated hummingbird that you can't even feel it if you're holding it. It's like, am I holding anything? <laughs> this same bird is flying over the Gulf of Mexico. And it takes a lot more work That's for this bird to fly than any other bird. So hummingbirds aren't like hawks that can just like have their wings out and soar, right? Or a vulture. Like it's constant movement. It is constant work. Constant powered flight the whole time. They're flying over open open ocean, open water, nonstop, 18, 22 hours without ever stopping all the way down to South America, right? And it's like, if I was just to say to somebody, what do you think this can do? Yes. If I presented them a, a hummingbird, what do you think this can accomplish? They would never say what they actually can do. They would never imagine that they could, right? And so the combination of, of, of birds existing in every place you can imagine, the combination of that with, you know, the fact that birds don't seem like they should be able to do very much, but they do just about the hardest physical feats of any living thing on this planet with yes. their incredible migrations and their breeding seasons and the way that they they live and survive. It's just like you would never think. And to me, that that reminds me of, of the the plight of my people. That reminds me of like the way that people interpret me, interpret us, right? And yeah. our capability and our capacity. And it's like, oh no, like you might think that we are fragile. You might think that we, yep. you know what I mean? But look how much we actually, you know what I mean? Like it's so, yes, there are so many layers to why birds embody hope for me. And studying them has really crystallized and helped me to see, wow, like the things that seem absolutely impossible are very much possible and are happening in magnitudes and, 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 and on scales that we can't even picture. I am really brimming. I am overwhelmed with gratitude. I'm overwhelmed with hope for the people that I've been able to build relationship with. The only thing that has drawn me out of hopelessness, the only thing that has drawn me out, I should say things that have drawn me out of what have, has a, has at times felt like bottomless rage and anger around the, the issues that we're facing is being able to be in relationship, relationship mm. with people and relationship with, with creation of which we are, of course, a part. And I think that separation from creation is what has led to the, the entirety <laughs> in many ways of, yes. of the, of the injustice, of the exploitation, of the scarcity that we now have and that we're, that we're subjected to lack of relationship with Creation and creator has has created this situation. I'm encouraged to meet people and to engage with people who see the interconnectedness of these elements and who thrive and root their work in relationship. And I think that that is one of the huge keys to to our success as a as a unit, as a, as a human community, as we move forward in realizing justice for for the creation that God has has spoken into existence. And I'm I'm excited about the work and I'm grateful. That last image that she shares of the birds was one that just hit me right in the gut. This part where she says, you may think that we are fragile, but dot, dot, dot. And I've been thinking about this idea of empowerment and disempowerment and fragility, because I think it's really easy in moments like this with climate, with racial justice, with all the incredible challenges that are facing us as a society 
to move to places of apathetic disempowerment. There's this whole like, well, the world's going to burn no matter what we do, so might as well order another package from Amazon sort of attitude. But one of the things I noticed in your conversation is how she framed what she was sharing with you um, by talking about imagination and then linking it to the practice of hope and how that can bring us into this place of empowerment. So I, I was really curious. That was one thing that really struck me. How did that land with you as you were talking with her? I appreciate this question, Ben. And what I'm holding in my mind is the moment in the conversation when Karina spoke about actually sitting with the tension of not knowing where lunch is going to come from the next day. She speaks that line kind of quickly, but that came into into my body in a way that I was able to picture her younger self. I spent 15 years in Philadelphia, so imagining her in in Philadelphia with those concerns. Then this next image, it's like it leaps to this other image for me of Karina holding a small bird in her hands and having this description of birds that have very fragile bones. I don't think I have ever had the opportunity to hold a bird in my hand. But I can picture what she's saying. What do you think this thing could accomplish? (laughs) What do you think this being can accomplish? That line then comes to both of those images, holding this little bird and holding the depletedness of feeling like there were so few options, literally even to know where where lunch was coming from. The two things I heard her say were people and not people, and sort of the more than human. The connections, paying attention to the connections is what creates possibility, is what brings her to the more, which we may call God or the divine. I don't know if any of that resonated for you, Ben, in terms of connection and that being a place of possible imagination and maybe even hope. As you share about that, I was thinking about how connection is a source of imagination and a new metaphor and how important it actually is to renew our relationship with the more than human community in order to renew our imaginations. As I think about some of the work that I've done with the BTS Center around organizational leadership, one of the most renewing things for the organizational leaders who we've been working with is just bringing ecological imagination or ecological metaphors into the room, inviting people to go to their natural environment and let it be their teacher. What does a a tree or a dog have to say about productivity? As it turns out, a lot and some things that are actually really important and really timely for the moment that we're in. And the other thing I often think about is how our relationship with the more than human community, indeed, and I find this is true of my relationship with my children as well, kind of helps me relativize or put into correct perspective all these big things that we're holding. I notice this with my children all the time. It's like, yes, the world is on fire, but right now the most urgent thing in my life is that my daughter needs Cheerios. And doing so brings me out of this kind of heady place of anxious disempowerment and back into my body, back into the concrete, back into the relational, back into the real. 
And I find the same thing happens for me when I'm working on the when I'm working on this property. It's very easy to sit and you know doom scroll, but in the end, like the sheetrock in a house that's moldy needs to be torn out. The lawn has to be mowed. Flower bulbs have to be planted. I find doing so is not actually, it's not a distraction from the important work, but it's a way to ground the work back in something that is concrete and physical and relational and real in ways that actually gives my imagination power, that enables my imagination and the ideas that I have when I build my castles in the air to actually be able to touch the earth in a way that can grow something new. One of the things Karina says is that she she really didn't have anyone to teach her to look closely. You and I both have young children and are into this more than human world exploration stuff. But I was thinking about beyond parents, who does do that teaching these days? And how do we support those opportunities to actually teach a young person or just another person, an adult also? this ability to look closely and find the healing and the the possibility that Karina speaks of in in actually paying deep attention. As you share that, I immediately think back to the contemplative practices that are a part of my tradition, because that is actually what took me into a place where I began to notice the more than human world around me. My teachers, when it came to that, were people like Teresa of Avila and Julian of Norwich Mm. and Meister Eckhart and some of the people who have been my spiritual teachers who are still living today. And I note that we live in a culture more than ever of perpetual distraction. One of the reasons why it's hard for nature to teach us now is because it speaks in cadences that are far slower than our smartphones. And yes. so we're sitting in a place and something doesn't happen within five seconds. That or the is desired so true. thing doesn't happen, right? In five seconds. You know, the bird's just sitting there. It's not doing anything entertaining like in the YouTube video we just watched. Before that bird or that moss or that tree has a chance to teach us, we take out our smartphone and we check social media or we look at our email or whatever it is that we've been trained intentionally to do. But of course, the contemplative life, and this is true in every spiritual tradition, is all about noticing. It's all about paying attention to what's showing up so you can show up to the world and so you can show up to your own life. And to me, this is such a key part of what it means to be engaged in the work that we're that we're doing nowadays. There's this tendency to get consumed by whatever like the crisis of the minute is, and heaven knows there are always 40 billion bad things happening in the world that feel like they demand our emotional and spiritual attention. Sometimes the thing we have to do is stop and notice that we're getting pulled in and then bring ourselves back into our bodies and into the place that we're supposed to be so that we can engage the work from a position of stillness, a position of non-anxiety or peace or love, rather than a position of, oh my goodness, what's going to happen next? I think as well about how that awareness that we have of the natural world and of these relations, also we then carry back into our own understanding of relations within the human world and issues like white supremacy and racial terror and structural injustice, which have been surfaced so powerfully and so painfully, especially over the last few years. I know you and I, Ben, and those of us connected to the BTS Center are 
really committed to diversifying the perspectives that we're seeing through. Living in Philadelphia, I know that my neighborhood, it was considered a downtown neighborhood. It was an urban neighborhood. But the neighborhood I was living in had trees and Karina's didn't. I constantly need to be in conversation with with Karina to know what even this same geography is experienced like by someone who's in a neighborhood without the trees that I am completely taking for granted. Nicole, what one of the things I appreciate about this is this note of how access to nature as teacher is tied up in racism. How even when it comes to these very foundational sources of wisdom that we need to be human, how even their access has been tied into and limited by the white supremacist structures that are a part of who we are as a nation. This commitment to to see through other experiences, other human experiences, other experiences from the natural world, it builds what's true. For me, that requires getting, as you said, out of the distraction entertainment cycle and realizing there is, there is so much more. There is so much more. As I mentioned earlier, you heard just a piece of our longer conversation. If you want to hear the full thing, please check it out. Visit thebtscenter.org backslash climate changed. At this point in our podcast, we love to shift into talking a little about what could be next. So let me share a couple of things that come from Karina's work. First, if you want to make your home more bird-friendly, Karina links to an article from American Bird Conservancy. Glass collisions kill up to one billion birds in the U.S. each year, and almost half happen at home windows. I just saw on the most recent Audubon newsletter the image at the top where these children painting with glass markers I love birds all over their glass doors and don't run in here. So this is something you can do today. Just visit abcbirds.org and look under the solutions tab. Ben, what are you thinking about in terms of next steps from this conversation? So if you're looking for an organization to help out, I'd actually suggest the one that Karina mentioned, which is the Black Church Food Security Network. Their national organizer, Reverend Heber Brown III, actually co-led a presentation for us on imagination back in 2021. Another great place is the Boston Food Forest Coalition, which starts and tends urban food forests throughout Boston. We'll post links to both places in the show notes, along with a link to our conversation with Heber back in 2021. You can also make a difference by making a donation to Freedom Birders. Freedom Birders is a racial justice education project built on inspiration from the civil rights movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, and hashtag Black Birders Week. Visit freedombirders.org to make that donation. And uh, one last one. If any of you are interested in starting to engage with nature as we've been talking about from a place of noticing and how nature can be a teacher, 
Our colleague Aaron Mitchell has put together an amazing set of trailside practices. These are all short videos, three or four minutes that you can engage with that'll give you some different exercises you can do in your encounter with wild nature, which may be out on the trail somewhere or in your backyard. And we'll put a link to those as well. There are about five different ones you can choose. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Climate Changed Podcast. We would love to hear your thoughts and responses to our conversation. We also welcome any suggestions you have for this new show. Feel free to email us anytime at podcast at the btscenter.org. That's podcast at the btscenter.org. Our podcast is produced by the amazing Peterson Toscano and is a project of the BTS Center in beautiful Portland, Maine. Learn more about the many resources we share and our regular online programming by visiting thebtscenter.org. Again, that's thebtscenter.org. We wish you well as you notice maples and pigeons and our human brothers and sisters living right beside us. <laughs>